He was not alone. There was nothing to indicate the fact but the white hand of the tiny gauge on the board before him. The control room was empty but for himself. There was no sound other than the murmur of the drives. But the white hand had moved. It had been on zero when the little ship was launched from the stardust. Now, an hour later, it had crept up. There was something in the supply closet across the room, it was saying. Some kind of a body that radiated heat. It could be but one kind of a body. A living human body. Lightning recap in The Cold Equations by Tom Godwin. A man with only one terrible option struggles to do what he must. Attend! You have a little time! Ahoy! You have a little podcast! This is Short Story Short Podcast. I am. And now I'm here with... Did you intentionally not say your name so as to confuse me? Or is there was there actually a technological little bump in the road there? Because I don't know. I break. Stop it. I was just messing with you. Um. <laughs> so mean. I'm Christy Baxter, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Christy Baxter, damn it. Um, I had a week of cold, so I wanted to snuggle up with a little cocoa, but I can't do cocoa because I'm diabetic, so it would kill me. Um, so I decided just to read a story to keep my mind off of things. So I wanted something light and fluffy and airy. What should I have read? You should not have read, if you were looking for something light and fluffy and airy and comforting, The Cold Equations by Tom Godwin. Now, this is a story that's been popping up all over the place right now for some reason. Uh, there's been a read sort of consideration of it as uh, a work of ethics which is an interesting point, I think, that we'll probably get to. But moreover, it is stylistically being re-sort of looked at as to how its style reflects the ideas of science fiction in the 1950s, it's from 1954 uh, to today, and the many, many differences. I, for one, am personally offended by the use of stardust as the name for a spaceship. <laughs> now explain to me why that personally offends you mr garcia oh it's so on the nose <laughs> a little too little too uh a little too pert there a little too specific <laughs> little you're, writing, you're writing a story in which someone must justify to themselves ethically <laughs> murdering someone and I guess you can see where I take my my stance on the story. <laughs> okay, um, but oh, I I know what your argument is, and that it seems like it's too lighthearted or dreamy of a name for this story. But think about we don't know for sure when they named that ship, but we definitely get in this story this understanding of the differences between Earth that we've known for billions of years and. The, you know, out there, space, the, the final frontier and all of that stuff. And it is a very different attitude. Out there lives don't mean as much. So if that's if that ship was named by somebody who didn't know 
the way that the, the space frontier worked and how harsh and unforgiving it was makes total sense to me. That is absolutely something some bureaucrat or politician or something came up with 100%. No. And uh, I think <laughs> one of the uh, interesting aspects. <laughs> Didn't expect that. Thank you. <laughs> um, one of the interesting aspects actually is this idea that we have a name to a ship, which is analogous to the way we name ships here on Earth. But in reality, more than likely, when we send a spaceship up, it's going to be some sort of number, maybe with a thing to to make to indicate the banality of it. At this point, I think by calling it Stardust, uh, one, they're ripping off Neil Gaiman 30 years before he wrote his book. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think the timing works out. <laughs> yeah, they were really ahead of the curve on this one. Um, but they're also giving it sort of this I don't want to say preciousness as in it's precious because, oh, stardust, but preciousness because it is referred to by a name as opposed to just being something. Because we don't name our cars, for example, or our large trucks. Excuse me. You maybe don't. But in our house, members of our family are Tiggy the Tiguan and Fiona. So many things are coming up. So many. <laughs> but uh it's this, this idea that that there's still something super special about space at this point but it's fascinating that when you look at how the technology is used here it's not anything super special there's a great uh where is it uh oh about the communicator it's just there it allows for it seems uh, si uh, simultaneous speech. So it's some sort of ansible uh, as people who read, I think it's Le Guin would know. <laughs> and the zine Ansible by Dave Langford, multiple Hugo winner, like me, I should mention that every now and then. Um, Cause I've never brought it up before. Um, no, not, not once. <laughs> no, but I do see that there are some really interesting little aspects that come out in the future of science fiction writing but at the same time it's definitely dated it feels like it's from the 50s which is probably good because this is the type of stuff we base our idea of what science fiction from the 50s is like because this has been continually reprinted as recently as i think 2010 11 in uh, lightspeed yeah it definitely is kind of um I don't know if I want to say the gold standard, but the standard for sure, as far as uh, style and sort of the the important elements that vis-a-vis -vis the technical stuff, you know, uh, you have fuel and communication and, you know, planets spinning and, and speed and all, and all, you know, physics equations and all this stuff. And so there's that definitely is not only a model um, for what we think of 50s science fiction, but also what we think, if we're going to drill down a little further, 50s hard science fiction and really altogether hard science fiction. I think this is very emblematic and a lot, a lot of people use this as will be nice and say inspiration. 
<laughs> I think you're right on that. And it's, it's interesting. The one thing that when I printed this out and I realized it when I was reading it, but then it really became apparent is Godwin was great about sectionalizing his paragraphs for impact. And for example, you'll have a long paragraph and then a very tiny paragraph. Uh, so you have this, you know, uh, she wanted to see her brother. She's only a kid, blah, blah, blah. It goes on for a, a fair chunk, about probably 75, 100 words. And then it's, what did he mean to go through with it? To jettison me? To go through with it? What did he mean? Not the way it sounded. He couldn't have. What did he mean? What did he really mean? That sort of compactness between two chunky paragraphs makes that sort of desperate questioning that much more heavy on its hit, I think. And that's one thing I think, you know, there are even, you know, sections and, you know, pulling out the, uh, the even the very short dialogue pieces to their own uh, things without, for the most part, tags, which I do like, as I often say. Yeah, I, I like that formatting too, but I do have to say, I feel like, I agree with you that his, his paragraph uh, paragraphs are structured very much for effect. I feel like um, easy comprehension takes a few hits if if uh, if he was doing uh, manipulating the paragraphs in order to do so. Especially, mainly, I'm talking about paragraphs with multiple speakers of dialogue because mm -hmm. those tend to be uh, all in one paragraph. And so, in a, I don't know if it's a reprinting error or if that's how he originally wrote it and how it's always been, but it definitely leaves the reader kind of struggling a little bit to catch up. So I, I just wanted to note that I feel that's a, that's a drawback to being too aggressive in trying to use paragraphs for effect. Mm -hmm. No, that's, I could see that. And uh, as a, someone who doesn't comprehend reading so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. I, I find in this story, we are, led to attach ourselves to the characters by their position in the story as opposed to the sort of the feelings or the thoughts of the individual characters well i think that's largely in part because we get their positions in the story before we get anything else before we get even hardly any hints of personality or or you know backstory any of those aspects of them we're introduced it, it's like it's like in media res, but just for for character situations. <laughs> Interesting. And I think that that becomes I think one of the reasons why this has caught on so much is that there is a universality to these two character archetypes, I think. And it is the afflicted and the afflicting. And I really think that that idea of we have sort of a stand in for the universal uh, was trying to do something that was important to them, but that was against the code and paying the price for that. And the person who ultimately either has to go through with it or deny the code. And I think that that central conflict exists across all literature, I think. And here, I think it's sort of emblematic of each character of that character type. 
Yeah, I agree. And uh, with, with afflicted and afflicting, you have uh, also much, it's quite the power struggle because usually in order to be the one afflicting, you have to have gained power. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, this guy's, he's, a, he's an emergency shuttle pilot. He's, he's got power over somebody's life only if they perform one crucial action. But she is just by virtue of her place in society and her youth and her inexperience and all of these things, she is therefore the afflicted. And so I very much feel that that's another way that maybe another reason that it's been becoming such a touchstone is uh, as we watch society uh, struggle with the idea of power and how to balance it. Uh, we can we we can attach ourselves more to uh, poor girls who get thrown out of an airlock. Correct. Uh, <laughs> I think that a lot of times people get into the deep thought of this story and sort of miss the fact that it is there's some glorious writing in here, and I think probably my favorite is existence required order. And there was order, the laws of nature, irrevocable and immutable. Men could learn to use them, but men could not change them. The circumference of a circle was always pi times the diameter, and no science of man would ever make it otherwise. In that big, chunky, honking paragraph. <laughs> okay. It's, it's impressive. It's impressive wordy. Yes, we get some some impressive uh, flights of uh, prosaic fancy here. I did have, all right, so here's where I struggle. I am not a highly technological person and I'm not actually a big hard science fiction person because of that. So I do a lot of second guessing of the text and then what follows that is immediately second guessing of my own second guessing. I guess that's third guessing. I don't know. I've lost count at this point. Um, so I had some questions and problems with some of the actual facts of it, but I am, uh, I know just enough to be dangerous. So that's basically where we stand there. So I'm like sitting here with these like little notes about the fuel and, you know, the unauthorized personnel keep out and stuff like that. And I'm like, but am I stupid? <laughs> and you can actually look at it as having extra mass on board actually increases inertia. So it actually makes it possible because most space travel would already be traveling without technically fuel for most of the way. So if you add weight, once you've got it to speed, you're going to keep going at that speed. See, that's why I don't feel qualified to nitpick these things because I don't know that shit. Oh, I don't know it either. I'm just making stuff up. But still. Oh, really? Are you, are you, or are you not? Because you love to mess with our ads. No, no, I have no idea what I'm saying, but it seems like <gasps> it, right? <laughs> you um, should be uh, the doctorate of bullshitting. <laughs> oh, I do. Anyhow, um, I think that there is some great stuff here, and I could see why this led to sort of the explosion of hard science fiction in the 60s. Uh, there's sort of a bifurcation actually that happened. And I think there's the group that sort of followed this stuff. And then the folks who really went into the psychedelia, uh, folks like Philip K. Dick, who decided to go to the mind instead of the nuts and bolts of what was going on. And this is definitely, this is pretty nuts and bolts. 
Yeah, I would say it's definitely nuts and bolts, which I was impressed that I, w- I enjoyed it as much as I did for how nuts and bolts it could be. Um, so that that definitely was a, a pleasant surprise. And if as long as I shut off the part of my brain that was trying to criticize without having really any knowledge from which to criticize. <laughs> That's called being an American. Uh, <laughs> um, so here's my question for you, and it's the most important question of all. Did he do the right thing? Oh, um, I don't know, honestly. I wish I could settle down on one side or the other, but this is honestly a really tough ethical question. I feel like I'm, my brain feels like I'm trying to watch an episode of The Good Place, you know, um, which is an amazing show, but it, it always like leaves me with a lot of like, philosophical questions that I hadn't really come to grips with. So I really... I mean, he, he, the author made a good case for him to be doing the right thing. And I, I don't know enough to be able to say whether there's an alternative. What I think, and this is a little bit passing the buck, but also I think digging a little deeper, I think that the powers that be with all of their power need to look into ways of travel that aren't, don't have such incredibly thin margins of error, especially when lives are on the line. So I don't think that this is necessarily a question of did he do the right thing? I think this is a question of did society and the government or whoever designed this thing, did they try hard enough to make it so that it, w- it wouldn't kill a 18-year-old girl to take a ride on it? A fascinating take uh, because it passes the buck. <laughs> That's I, what I'm I, good at. <laughs> I tend to fall on the side that that you have to make the choice that either a human life or a codified series of sanctions are are the sort of the importance and i as a rule breaker uh who wears stripes after labor day (laughs) i know i know Uh, i definitely think that placing that sort of decision in the hands of an individual is wrong. I think you're right on that point. I think actually doing it is even wronger. And wait, I think even having done it and being okay with it is the wrongest of all. Okay. And But what's what alternative? If you say that something is wrong, you have to... Like that, that, I think that's why I'm the most uncomfortable with saying like choice A or choice B is wrong because there is only a choice A unless it's what suicide. Like, what are his other options? The way that the author presented it, there was there were none. Okay, technically murder suicide, but <laughs> well, yes, that too. But he would be adding his own suicide on top of the murder, one way or the other. One way or the other. If that's your other option, she's still dying. This, it's, it's the same result for her. It's just that he's going to die and probably everybody on that planet is going to die too. But you're also paying the price. What, am and... I, what price am I paying? I'm broke, man. I can't afford anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a pot calling the kettle a pot. Um, <laughs> I think one of the beautiful things, though, about that argument is, you know, this is the classic uh, trolley problem. Um, where the correct answer is you 
flip the switch, hit the three people, flip the switch back, back up and hit the other person. So everybody dies. I should have known that that would be your stance on both the trolley problem and the shuttle problem, uh, which is apparently, yes, apparently you're very consistent, at least in wanting to murder literally everyone. Okay, first off, the real shuttle problem were those O-rings and they knew it. Uh, Ooh, too that was soon, a, man. <laughs> that was a deep cut for you uh, NASA nerds. Uh, all <laughs> Uh, got any else, else, anything else on this one? I don't have a, a else, else, anything else on this one. Christy. Hey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Very giggly today. I'm trying to ignore the fact that I went to physical therapy today and now I want to, um, jump off a cliff. <laughs> oh, not before you tell me what we're reading next week. Oh, yeah, I probably should do that. Uh, so as I head off towards this cliff, I would like to tell you that next week we will be reading Cat Person by, I know her first name is Kristen, because that's mine. And her last name is, where'd the, where'd the link go? I made, I made the calendar event. Where's the link? There's the link. Okay. Uh, Rupinian. Kristen Rupinian. Oh, excellent. Well, as you go to Thelman Louise, uh, <laughs> I am short story and I am petite podcast <laughs>